You're listening to SAS Nordic, the sassiest podcast in the Nordics. Hi, I'm Daniel. And I'm Thomas. And we are experienced SaaS professionals that are curious about how other successful SaaS companies go to market, scale, build winning teams and great products. Join us on our journey as we speak to Nordic SaaS leaders trying to get hold of their secret sauce. Today's guest is Giles Whiting, the Chief Operating Officer and Managing Director at Forsta and Operating Partner at Verdane. You've got to have a really clear perspective on why did our product work so far and what were the aspects of the product that drove its success. Likewise, if we back up and look at the market conditions for where we were successful, what were those? And do we have those types of market conditions in the places we're thinking about going? Hey there, Daniel. Uh, Time for a podcast again. And today we're going to learn a lot about what you shouldn't do and should do when you expand your business to the US. Exactly, exactly. I know for uh, you and I, Thomas, have obviously been on that journey before. uh, And for many of you listening to this, US is that, you know, holy grail, that destination we all need to end up in and, and be successful with our SaaS companies. However, we also know that it's damn difficult, excuse my language, but it's really difficult and most of the companies actually fail initially. Yeah. So we're going to talk to an American today that is helping European companies and he's actually going to tell us why the heck we struggle. Yeah, I hope that this is a topic that is interesting for you because here we go. Today, we are very happy to have Giles Whiting, the Chief Operating Officer and Managing Director at Forsta and Operating Partner at Verdane. Welcome to the podcast, Giles. Great to be here. Thanks. Hey, it's awesome to have you here with us. And I know you're, you're calling uh, in here today from the other side of the pond. Like, wh- where are you actually based? Yeah, um, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting question because um, you know, uh, home base, especially in a big country like the US, really changed with COVID. So... You know, I, I was I was based in New York for a long time. I was based in uh, Miami before that, um, but now I, I spend most of my time in this little tiny town in northern Florida called uh, Amelia Island. So that's where I'm joining from. Uh-huh. Wow! So what brought you there? Um, well, as you guys know, sometimes when you're working in technology, your your days are really intense, and uh, so, sometimes after work you want to take a little break. So I live in a town where. Um, I think I might be the only one that works in SaaS, and so I can walk out and no one's, no one's like asking me tech questions or <clears throat> talking about the industry. And it's just total freedom and, and a mental break from uh, from the day. Nice. All right. Some peace of mind. Yeah. So, so what do people do around wh- where you live then? Yeah. It's uh, well, the weather's the weather's quite good year round. Uh, it's actually the best in January, um, and and so there's a lot of nature and like hiking. Uh, running trails, bike trails. Of course, there's the uh, there's the water. We're one mile from the from the ocean, so uh, people will walk to the beach, swim in better weather. And uh, and I, I took up surfing this year. Oh wow, cool! But I'm uh, not very good. <laughs> uh, but uh, I figured I needed like another form of exercise, like something different as I get older. So I'm trying to do that. Yeah, awesome. So. Um surfing and in your spare time and just disconnecting from our sometimes crazy sauce world like but tell us a little bit for the people that don't know Giles like professionally what have you done and how did you end up at Forsta and Verdane? Yeah so um, uh, if we if we start way back you know 25 years ago I was um, I was studying physics at the Air Force Academy which is 
you know, one of the, the, the three military academies in, in the U.S. We have West Point, Annapolis, and the Air Force Academy. Um, and I knew at a really young age that I wanted to be a physicist and study physics. I'm going to like this twist. And then you ended up with sales. Like, please, <laughs> continue. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, so then uh, I was a physicist in, in the Air Force for a little bit. And I got out of the Air Force and, and said, well, you know, where do I want to go next? I want to go somewhere where I can where I can uh, make an impact and somewhere that moves more quickly than science. Because you know, the, 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 the one hard thing about you know, the real basic sciences is the projects you're on do not move very fast. Right? Right. It's literally like I was working on projects that had 20-year time, timelines. Right? So I would know if it was successful maybe in 20 years. Right? Right. <laughs> and then at the end of the 20 years, you can't really do anything about it. Right? So it's like... I was working a lot on satellites. I'm like, oh, it doesn't work. Like, okay, you know, I can't like go get it. <laughs> so um, I decided I want to go into business, and I didn't, I didn't really know anything about business. <laughs> and um, uh, and and ironically, I think the thing that happens when you don't know anything about business is you go into consulting. So I went to uh, <laughs> I went to McKinsey. And I learned a ton and I had a, a really great experience there. Um, actually, I, it was a real formative um, uh, four years that I spent with McKinsey and uh, um, uh, learned so much and met so many great people. It really is was a, a true business boot camp um, and, and did end up specializing, especially in, in, in uh, highly quantitative um, uh, macroeconomic strategy type type projects. That's what I did the most of and I really enjoyed it. Um, but long story short, I, I, I realized kind of in my late 20s, early 30s, I didn't want to be a consultant my whole life. And, and I'd always had this tech bend to me. And so I decided I'd, I'd pivot and go back into technology. And, and I went, um, I was fortunate enough to join a, a large customer experience company called T-Tech. It's a, it's a public company. It's been on the NASDAQ for about 30 years. I was a chief of staff to the CEO there. And was helping him pivot more and more to be a product-based company. They had, they had historically been services-based, and you know, this was this was in um, uh, you know, the, the sort of 2010 timeline where more and more folks were pivoting towards product and SaaS and using SaaS to drive their business. And um, uh, and he was a real forward thinker, Ken Tuckman, the CEO there uh, of how to do that in CX. So spent a few few years working with him. Um, uh, led a, led a co company called Percepta uh, through a transition, uh, which was uh, a, a kind of a cousin of, of T-Tech, and then joined Medallia, um, which was at, really at the first upswing of the CX and, and EX um, uh, SaaS revolution, which has, has only continued to gain momentum. Uh, and long story short, went from Medallia to um, being an operating partner at, so at SoftBank and, and, and uh, spent a lot of time doing um, uh, both the investing side and the operating side for some of their tech companies. But then um, Verdane, uh, which you may know, invests not only a lot in software companies, but especially in, in, in companies around the CX space. They got in touch and they said, hey, uh, you've done some of this stuff before. Um, would you be interested in, in maybe uh, working with some of our portfolio companies? And, and there was one at the time called Confirmit, which, uh, which I had known about because they were um, in the same ecosystem as Medallia, but didn't know that much. And, uh, uh, and, and the more I looked at it, the more I was really excited about what they had here. And it's been just a great ride with, um, with Confirmit, now Forsta, uh, now part of 
uh, Prescani, so PG Forsta is the combined company, um, and a great ride with Verdane as well, really have enjoyed the, their ecosystem. And doing what we're going to talk about today, like helping those companies think about how to scale their sales and their market presence, and especially scale into the U.S. Absolutely. And what can you tell us in short about Forsta? What, what do you guys do? So Forsta is the world's leading experience company, and experience um, you could you could hear that and you could think uh, Disney World is an experience. Yes, um, and actually Disney uh, is one of our clients. But what we do is we help companies understand their customers' experience, their employees' experience, the experience folks are having with their brand, um, the experience folks are having with their product. So there, it used to be in this industry that companies were really siloed um, and companies uh, would focus on, okay, we're an explore employee experience uh, expert and we're going to help you understand your employee experience or we're going to help you understand your brand experience. And you know, that's what a lot of market researchers would do technic- uh, um, historically. What we realized is that the common theme and data point here is that every one of those things is really trying to understand a human experience. So what we've, what we've been able to do is take what used to be a really siloed set of tools and bring them together on one platform and we call that the human experience platform and it's one platform one uh one set of access to 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 a whole uh diverse set of tools where you can use any of those tools at any point to to get that understanding and, and as you guys probably know forsta it comes from um from the the the, the nordics language um, uh, and it, it means, you know, to understand. And so that's really what we're trying to help yeah. companies do. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And besides Disney, who's your ideal customer? Uh, so we work with, with customers in almost every major industry. I mean, you get, you think about, um, uh, airlines, banks, uh, large banks and, and smaller regional or local banks, um, automotive companies, uh, a lot of B2B companies, right? So you think people often forget that, B2B has customers as well, and of course, employees and everything else. <laughs> Sounds to me that you are targeted towards the enterprise segment, or? It's, it's, it's very much enterprise. Okay. Um, we, it's not a B2C product at all, but, uh, but it is, it's pure, hardcore B2B SaaS. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you also work within Verdane in the Elevate team, as you mentioned. So can you tell us a little bit exactly what, what are you doing there? How do you help companies within the portfolio there, right? So um, one of the, one of the great benefits of of Verdane is when Verdane comes in as a as an investor and a and a partner, um, you you also get access to this whole team, which is called you know the Elevate team, and there are um, really subject matter experts and functional experts within the Verdane Elevate team, and, and that team is you know, some thirty odd folks now, I think, <laughs> um, uh, and they're they're experts in everything from um, marketing to uh, CRM to um, uh, uh, you know finance experts that can come in and, and you know assist your, assist your finance team, uh, uh, legal, uh, HR, and then you know, other folks like me who um, you know, I, I primarily have a uh, an operating and, a, and, a, and particularly a growth background, and so you know, I would I would go in and help companies think about. Again, like what we're going to talk about, how do we, how do I think about growth and go to market and sales? Uh, how do I think about commission plans, things like that? So um, it's these types of, of, of uh, 
uh, expertise that that the uh, the Elevate team is able to bring. All right, awesome. And and just as you said that, this is exactly what we're going to talk about because. For everybody listening here, uh, most of our audience is based in the Nordic. So they are all either going to the U.S. at some point in time or have already taken on the U.S. with, you know, some really successful, some with mixed success and so on. But there's one thing we have definitely seen is that it's really difficult to take on the U.S. as a Nordic B2B SaaS company. like... I don't know exactly why that is, you know, Thomas and I have done that journey a couple of times ourselves, but we wanted to talk to you a little bit like from an American perspective and in your role and the companies you see, like, why is the hit rate or success rate not as high as one would anticipate? Like, why is it so damn tough for these Nordic or sometimes European companies to actually be successful with their sales in the US? Like, so, so I know... Uh... I know we have a title for this for this podcast, which we had been bouncing around, which is you know, why your U.S. expansion will fail. And I think if if it comes down to one one thing, one overarching theme uh, that you can you can um, uh, kind of ask yourself why something would succeed or fail, and not not just with the U.S. with any, really any geography, it really comes down to to the basic theme of you know, clear product uh, and market fit, and I think it, it comes down to one one theme, which is you know, clear product market fit and ensuring that um, uh, as you're thinking about a geographical expansion, that you have that really clear perspective um, on why your product has worked uh, where, where it is today and what led to its success. And at the same time, what were the market conditions and the what was the market environment that you were in which was complementary or you know the good fit right for that product or for that service um uh and and that's where i think a lot of people uh, uh fall down right they think of they think just about where is the next big market right um and not what was the market that I was operating in, and what are the what are the dimensions and characteristics of that market where I was successful? And does this new market that might be big, right? Does this new market have those same characteristics or not? Right. Right. And yeah. and on the product side, what were the reasons my product was really successful here, right? And 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 in and in this new market, are those conditions still available? What I'm hearing, if I understand it correctly, is that you, you may have product market fit and had successful sales in in the Nordics, let's say, or maybe even in Europe. But it doesn't mean that you by default have product market fit, for example, in the US. Yeah. And I, I think that's interesting because also one of the reasons, and, and now I'm talking as an observer, what we've seen why companies maybe sometimes struggle going from the Nordics to the US, from, from Europe to the uh, US, is that they end up in this dilemma where they discuss and be like, look, our product, our offering, our messaging needs to be different in the US. And then they end up in two different companies because they try to uh, adapt and adjust. And then you end up potentially open up another can of worms. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so let me give one example, which I think will be a, a nice one for us to look at and discuss exactly what you're just saying here, which is the other side of the coin. So there's there's a really famous example of 
Uber and Grab, right? Right. We all, we all know ride sharing, and most people would think ride sharing is pretty common, right? If you can do it in one place, you can do it in another place. So Uber went to the Middle East. We'll, we'll just use Dubai as, as, a, as, a, as an easy example. So Uber said, look, Dubai is a big market. People don't like to drive their own cars there. There's a lot of tourists. Ride sharing makes a ton of sense. Let's go to Dubai. Grab was already there. Grab had a lot of market share. And of course, we know eventually Uber bought Grab. Right. Um, what Uber didn't realize and Grab uh, uh, was already taking advantage of is that most of the payments in the Middle East were being done with cash. And Uber had no way to accept cash at the time. Right? And so Grab had set up its product uh, with the ability to, set, to accept cash from the riders. Uber came in and, and you know, one, people had already uh, downloaded the Grab app or familiar with the interface, familiar with the cars, et cetera, and familiar with the payment system. Right? So you could say all those other things you can either replicate, like the cars, a better interface, et cetera. But if you, if you miss one of these key ingredients, which is what happened in Uber's case, right. then that led to, you know, to, to ultimately them not getting the market traction nearly that they, had, they thought they were going to get. So there was a product piece there that they had missed. Right? right. The market was clearly right for it. Now, you could argue, too, that there were some other factors like regulation and favor for the, you know, the local player, et cetera. Certainly, those played a, a, a role. But what I would also say is Uber ended up uh, changing years later its platform to accept cash, right? So there was a clear product piece that they had missed in, in that market, uh, which they didn't, they didn't um, con, um, consider. Now, what you brought up is the other side of the coin, which I also think is one of the reasons why expansions fail and sometimes are really painful. And that's because a lot of folks, and I think especially in the U.S., this can be... Um, almost a scary thing uh, when you have maybe a new country leader, uh, a new market leader, and that market leader says it's different here. Right. Yeah. Never heard that before. Yeah. <laughs> this idea that everything you know isn't applicable anymore, doesn't fit, it's different here, and you have to let us do something totally different. Well, I mean, what you're kind of saying in that circumstance is, we're going to just set up a totally different company, yep. right? And as a, as, a, as a CEO or as an executive you're back at, at headquarters, what you should probably be doing at that point is scratching your head and saying, do we really want to set up a new company, Yeah. right? If it's really that different, right, then that's the question that we should be asking ourselves is, do we want to set up a new company, right? Yeah. Or, and this is what I think a lot of people don't do when they hear that, that, that statement, it's different here, um, you really need to challenge it and you need to say, is it really different there? And if you've done your, if you've done your research and you, and you have investigated that, that those, those uh, characteristics of product market fit, you need to be able to, before you go into uh, a, a new market, really have a, a convicted and educated perspective on that market and on why your product will succeed, yeah. right? And you've got to have that before. Now, that's not to say you shouldn't learn and you shouldn't iterate and, and you, know, you shouldn't be agile, et cetera, as you learn more information. But, but if you, the second someone says it's different here, you just say, okay, you know, now we're essentially ignorant of the market, right? That is a recipe for failure. Right. 
So how does this look then? Like, you know, I'm simplifying things, obviously, like when you're done with your research and the work, you know, investigating the market to identify, will will this fly or not? Like, you know, what's the piece of evidence that we need to bring back home to, to the headquarters to, to see like, look, this is actually going to work or it's not going to work? What, what I think it would look like, imagine you came back with this really clear, detailed list of here were the market conditions where we've been successful. Right. Um, and here are the key parts of the product and how they were accepted in the places we've been successful or how uh, and, and probably things that um, maybe competitors have elsewhere or even in the market that didn't really matter and didn't hold back success. Right. And then if you compare compare that to the uh, to the other market you you want to go into and you say, OK, here are the things that are different about that market or here are the things that are about the same. And, and, and you know, the things that are the same are going to help drive our product. The things that are different, I have to think, don't matter and won't, you know, won't be of such importance that they um, uh, lead to, the, the, to, to uh, um, us being unsuccessful in, in, in bringing the, 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 our product there. Mm-hmm. And likewise, you know, here are the things that our product has or doesn't have. And the things it has are the things that are going to drive success. And the things it doesn't have are things that aren't going to matter, right? You have to have that, you know, that truly objective perspective. But then at the same time, and this is you know, getting uh, maybe on to the, to the next piece of this, you, you have to have a business plan of how you're going to expand to that market. Because even then, right, even if you said we have really good product market fit for this, GR, this new market over here, you might look at the business plan and say, that's not something that we should bite off right now mm. because we have other trade-offs we can make in the business. Yep. And that could be a cost thing. It could be an attention thing, uh, especially in the U.S. You know, it, it is a very costly place to, to, to um, uh, uh, set up a, a new uh, uh, location. Uh, with salespeople. Yeah, and it's a huge <laughs> country, right? I mean, it's a continent. So, I mean, how do you pick the place where you're going to put down your your feet and establish yourself? Yeah, I think, um, uh, you know, uh, yeah, we're coming off a, uh, a a really rich few years in terms of capital and, and access to cash. Uh, and and I think a lot of people go with the, the default of, um, I should put uh, my head headquarters or my my country location in San Francisco or New York right. or Chicago or maybe Austin. Every one of those is a really expensive place, right? And the competition for talent is is uh, uh, incredibly intense. And um, uh, and and what that means is two things: one, you're going in with significant cost com- uh, commitments up front, right, from day one, which you're probably not earning revenue on day one. You've already got a bunch of costs. Uh, you're going to have relatively higher costs in terms of talent because those are really you know, expensive places for talent. Um, uh, and um, you've put yourself at a lot of risk because uh, uh, those are concentrated talent markets. And so if you don't get traction quickly, your talent can easily move to another another uh, company. Mm. So those three factors you would you would look at and you'd say, that sounds pretty risky, yeah. right? Like maybe I shouldn't put it there. <laughs> so I, I really encourage folks to look at um, uh, what I'll call sort of secondary or, or up and coming markets um, 
you know, uh, um, uh, Verdane has a portfolio company that put their U.S. headquarters in, in uh, Fort Lauderdale, which is right outside of Miami. Yep. There's still really good individual tax incentives there. Um, still access to good talent, much lower cost of living than central Miami. Yeah. People want to be there. Um, uh, so, for, you know, the, uh, um, places like Fort Lauderdale, I think, are really good cities like that. There's also Canada, right? Yeah. I mean, Toronto is, we, we, Forsta has an office in Toronto. Um, it's, it, it, it's very easy to get to the U.S. from Toronto. <laughs> so you can even put your, you know, make it an America's headquarters. You don't have to make it a, a U.S. headquarters, but you can go to Boston, New York, Chicago, and, you know, 30 to 45 minutes on a, on a plane in, from Toronto. So uh, that's a great location. Um, if you want to be on the West Coast, you know, Vancouver is a great location. There are lots of other cities beyond San Francisco or LA that you can, you can be in the West Coast. Um, more and more folks are moving to Denver. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's probably, it's, it's in the realm of Austin uh, at this point in terms of price and, and competition for talent. But, but again, um, you know, Colorado Springs, right? Uh, just an hour south of Denver. Um, uh, it's a, it's kind of a, an up and coming tech place. So I think, I think folks need to look at, you know, yes, there are concentrations of talent and, and people want to be certain places, but especially now where you don't have to have employees in the office all the time, think about a lower cost city where, you know, that talent is, is, is fine to be near, um, uh, or can, can come into, uh, and not not necessarily you know, having to go to the big big cities. Fundraising can be exhausting. With Float, funding for SaaS businesses has never been easier. All digital funding platform apply in just a few clicks. 100% customizable growth loans to fit your needs. No dilution, no personal or equity guarantees. Fuel your growth by accessing a credit line of up to 70% of your ARR within days. And the best of all, you get a fixed interest rate from Float. Visit gofloat.io and get funded. Speaking of talent, I'm, I'm just curious also, like, what your thoughts on this, also considering, you know, the cost, the commitment, you know, doing this exercise. We've seen two examples. One where Nordic companies and basically they dip their toe in the water and put one or two people in the U.S. to try to get this going. Uh, some more successful than others. Uh, I'm not sure, like, I don't have an, an empirical study here, but I think it's a risky uh, setup. Mm -hmm. The alternative is to put and go big from day one and maybe, put, you know, take on a, a really big uh, expense exercise and create a team of 10, 15, 20 people. Then you're much more of a US operation and ready to hit to, like, you know, really take on the market. But then you're burning cash much more. Like, you know, what's your take on this? Like, what is the right approach? I think um, you have to have conviction that uh, that you've got something that's going to be successful, right? Um, so I would challenge folks on you know, the the go big strategy if they have not demonstrated any success in that market, mm. um, even if they've done kind of the work and the research, right? right? If they haven't demonstrated success in that market, I would wonder why do you think this is such a good market for you that you're going to be so successful and, and you're going to do this go big go big approach. Um, uh, so, so what do you do instead? Tr try to sell into the market, right? Try to get some big customers, right? 
um, I've always called these kind of lighthouse customers, right? Can you land a few lighthouse customers that 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 um, that help you prove in that market and to that market that this is um, this is something that that others should be aware of, that other customers, other prospects should be aware of. Those are, these are the referenceable customers, right? Like, yeah. A big bank, right? A big retailer, right? The the brand names that everyone knows. Can you get one or two of those in that market? And then you can hit the ground and say, "Hey, we already work with you know, whoever it is, Lloyd's Bank in uh, in London, or Bank of America uh, in in the U.S. or you know in the U.S. Um, uh, most people's dream customers are customers like Walmart or Disney, right? Yeah, yeah those are those are all premier brands that everyone would love no matter where you are. But if you can find some of those that can be relevant for your sales process, then that's really great. And then you can say, okay, right? And if, if the sales pipeline and everything else is there, maybe then you 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 have more rationale to do that go big strategy. But I think you gotta get the customers first. So what do you think about some companies? The CEO is moving over for a few years or the founders are getting over to maybe set the culture and also making sure that, you know, it's not a, too big a difference in between the American company and what you have in the Nordics or in Europe. Is that a good strategy or is that, are there pitfalls in that? Should you instead get the, an American leader from the start in, instead? It's a good question because it, it happens a lot, but um, uh, uh, but but what we know is you're not going to have the CEO in every geography you expand to, right? Right. So maybe maybe because of the size of the U.S. market, it makes sense sometimes for the CEO to come over. Um, uh, I think you can definitely do it with other senior leaders, right? So so frankly, you know, one, one of the one of the strategies that we took at Forrester, well, we took two strategies. Um, uh, and this is, this is an, another path to getting into the, into new markets. Um, you know, one of the things that we did is we purposely had a distributed executive team. And so, you know, my, myself and, um, the head of HR and the CFO were all based in, uh, uh, in New York, uh, and certainly uh, like on the East coast during COVID. Um, and then we had the CEO, um, the CMO in, uh, in London, and we had um, uh, the head of uh, product and the head of technology in, um, in Sweden and Norway, so, because these were our hubs, right? And so we had a distributed exec team. Um, and so, you know, even, even though, you know, some of those folks weren't in sales, right, weren't in go-to-market, um, uh, having the sales teams in those markets, being able to interact with those executives and having, of course, you know, a real presence there with executives was, was helpful for sales and helpful for, for prospects. Um, uh, but the other thing that, that, that I think you can do is um, find a good partner. And so I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, of uh, partnerships and alliances. I think it's one of the most um, uh, uh, poorly executed strategies in, in uh, SaaS. And um, you know, what, what, what I think I've been able to do uh, and I've seen really successful SaaS companies do is enter new markets with folks that are already on the ground and already proven, but the partnership 
can, uh, can bring something right that neither one could could have done themselves. Uh, so there's a real sort of one plus one equals three when you when you find the right partner and you're committed to that partnership. All right, cool. So if we would try to summarize this uh, a little bit, so what would be the top three things that you should think about entering the U.S. market? Yeah. Uh, so the first, back to where we started, um, product market fit. I think uh, you've got to have a really clear perspective on why did our product work so far and, and what were the aspects of the product that drove its success. Likewise, if we back up and look at the market conditions for where we were successful, what were those? And do we have those types of market conditions in the places we're thinking about going? So I think that's number one. The second is um, don't taking don't take that it's different here uh, uh, excuse too seriously. Otherwise, you're essentially just starting a new company, right? So when you do make the jump into a new market, you really have to have that perspective and that conviction. And how do you get that? Well, you can get that um, by either landing customers early, those lighthouse customers that are referenceable and that have, that essentially give you those early proof points where you can be successful here. And you could also explore um, this path of partnerships, which uh, which uh, can be from a lighthouse customer or can be from kind of a, um, uh, a, a, a company in your ecosystem or, or adjacent to what you do in building that partnership. Uh, another way to get get early success. Yes, Thomas, we will get to the, th to the third one as well. Okay, then. But I just had one tiny little question for you here, Giles, as well. Very concretely, do you think that a SaaS company can have two parallel sales motions? So one in Europe that works. Let's say they, they sell directly in Europe, but to the customer, but in, uh, in the US, the market conditions are different and there you need to run a partner-led sales. Is that something to consider or no? Yeah, yeah. I think you can absolutely do it. You have to have really clear um, um, uh, sort of lines of responsibility and ownership between those motions because uh, it's pretty rare that someone who's really good at direct sales is also going to be really good at partnerships because they are very different motions. Right. But you can, you can do both. I mean, I've, I've, I've seen this in many cases where there's certain geographies that folks will only go uh, go into through partnerships. Um, and then there's other geographies where there's direct sales teams that are on the ground. All right. All right. The third thing. So, so the first one was product market fit. The second one was it's different here. Yeah. The third one. So the third one um, uh, is, to, is to really make sure you have a good business case, right? And, uh, you know, when we talked about costs, especially in the U.S., it, it is, um, uh, it's a very expensive place to set up and to hire. Uh, and you've got to, you know, you've got to challenge yourself of, is that the best use of your resources? You know, we're, we're, we're especially now in an environment where uh, cash is more precious than ever. And... Um, uh, funding environments are, are harder than ever. And so you know, what what are your top priorities? Yeah. And if you look at you know, the business case to go do a big geographical expansion, is that sort of helping advance priority number one and two? And if you look at the cost to do that, right, is that the best use of those, those dollars? Okay. So uh, talking about dollars, so how much do you need to pay a seasoned salesperson in the U.S.? What's, what's reasonable? Um, so <laughs> I, I spend a lot of time 
thinking about comp plans and commission plans. Okay. Uh, uh, I would love it if I could find um, not only sales leaders, but every salesperson that works only on uh, a success base, essentially a commission base. So I would love to have zero salary and all commission. And I would pay a premium. I would pay you know, 25, 30 cents on the dollar if I could find those people <laughs> for dollar sales. All right. So you're not a big fan of, of what the funnel and Mentimeter is doing in Sweden. They are not giving any commissions at all to the sales reps. I think um, it's hard to be hungry if you already have a full plate, right? <laughs> So, but, but, but what would you say for people that are listening to this, like, you know, and obviously it's a range a little bit depending on where, where you are, but what is an on-target earning for a seasoned B2B salesperson, like if we take the entire US? Daniel wants to know how much he would make if he goes to the US. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so a senior, I mean, a senior sales leader, uh, sales leader in the US um, you're looking at kind of 150 to 200, right? Uh, I, 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 I advise companies really never to go over that, that 200 mark. Um, uh, and then commission is on top, right? So, uh, and, and for most of the, almost every hunter, right? So pure new salesperson with a quota, um, my advice is structure at 50-50, right? right? So 50% base on target earnings will double that. And of course, you, you can then get into accelerators if you if you uh, go beyond your quota. Um, that's a pretty standard uh, commission package in, in the U.S. of 50-50. You know, and you know, that base number and then, of course, the OTE, because it's half here and half there, will change you know, whether you're junior, middle, or senior. Right. But up to $400,000 a year if you sort of... If you're nailing your numbers. But, but of course, you got much bigger quotas if you're, if you're that kind of... For that kind of person, yeah, of yeah. course, yeah. of course. But but um, you know, sales is cutthroat in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, you know, the 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 kind of the rule of thumb is um, uh, six months, right? So if you're not if you're not showing it in six months, uh, then you, you you probably don't have that job for much longer. Okay. Uh, and it's a it's a very easy place to fire people. Right? Like it's what, that sometimes that's good in the U.S. Sometimes that's bad, but. Yeah. So sales is a performance game, right? Yeah. Yeah. It sure is. So what is the future now for yourself and Forsta? Yeah. Um, like I think uh, uh, like any good salesperson, like the, the future is growth. <laughs> yeah. So, so um, you know, we, we find in this market especially that more and more um, uh, 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 enterprises, they've had experience with a lot of different similar software providers, similar platforms. And especially in this market, <clears throat> a lot of companies are looking to consolidate. And so we see a lot of companies that are that are going from, hey, I use two or three similar software providers and I'm looking to consolidate on one. <laughs> and we see that being a big um big tailwind for Forsta. Um we've we've uh despite the economic conditions, we've had some some really great wins and expansions over the last couple of quarters and um and, th- and that's always the plan right the plan is always to keep those things going all right cool so is there anything particular that you're looking for right now <laughs> it's, a, it's a great question i think um we've been pretty pretty highly acquisitive i'm, I'm, I'm talking about forsta and, and pg forsta we've been pretty highly acquisitive in, over the last two years um We've acquired uh, five different companies, uh, all in the experience space, and we've we've really broadened on that spectrum. 
Um, I think we're always looking for uh, uh, the next kind of great add-on uh, to be a part of this true end-to-end, complete, most complete experience platform. Okay. So I think I think we always have an eye out for that. Do you have a particular gap in your offering that you would like to fill? Ooh, what a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, there's not a particular gap, which is great. I mean, we, we, but but you know, technology always evolves, right? So yeah. Uh, a year ago, no one was talking about chat GPT and now everyone's talking about it, right? So yeah, um, you know, t- technology is, is one of those things that, that you've got to stay on the forefront of. So so I guess we're always looking for that. Like what is the next yeah. next big capability that the market wants and that technology can provide? Wow. So spoken like a true salesperson. So Thomas, you asked about a gap. But you got the answer about the future outlook looks really good. <laughs> Definitely. And looking at the future as well, is there anyone that you think we should get on the show here and chat a little bit with? Frankly, I spend most of my time thinking about uh, competition. I don't want any of them on the show. <laughs> <laughs> is there a particular topic that you think that you guys are also observing now from a you know, B2B SaaS perspective? Like, you know, we, we need to address this topic more, whatever that is. Yeah, you know <clears throat> what I think. Um, this is a great, great, uh, great question. I think I would say two, two, two topics would be really interesting. One is um, uh, employee engagement, yeah, because you know we have come from a time, as you guys know, where companies were growing fast, access to a lot of money, spending a lot of money, and we're now in a very different time. And when we see almost every tech company doing layoffs, that takes a toll on employees. And I think that more and more leaders are, are right now thinking about how do I keep the, the, the employees um, that we have in the company strong and engaged and focused. Mm-hmm. Um, and focus is, is a key piece there, not just engagement, but um, and so engagement could, could be interpreted as I'm happy and I'm not going to leave the company, but that's not what we want. What, what we want actually is the employees stepping up and doing more and actually supporting the company in an even bigger way. Right. And, um, and so I think, you know, that's an interesting topic. You know, and the other, the other topic I think, um, would be, uh, you know, if, if, if you, if you ask engineering leaders and product leaders, how are they coping in a time with less investment? Okay. Yeah. Because I, because they're making trade-offs too, right? Mm. Um, most companies have hiring freezes. I, I don't know a single company out there who's head of product or head of uh, technology doesn't have a massive list of to be hired folks. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and so now what are you going to do? Like when you don't have those and how do you rethink your product roadmap and the trade-offs you're making in product? Yeah. Right? Because you're probably not going to be able to do as much as you used to. That's a good one. Very interesting. Giles, it was great having you on the show. Thank you for the chat. Uh, enjoy Northern Florida and, uh, you know, not having all the SaaS people around every day. <laughs> I do like them, but I see them a lot. Yeah, and see you around. Hope to see you in Sweden, maybe at SaaSiest or some other location. Would love to. Yeah. This was a lot of fun. And of course, if you uh, ever get over here, let me know and, and I'll take you maybe on a surf trip, but, but I'm not good. So it's mostly falling that I do. <laughs> exactly. We can do that. We can fall. <laughs> All right. Th- thank you so much. Take care now. All right. See you guys.
All right, Daniel, what's your takeaway from the episode today? You can't take all three. No, no I'm not, I'm not going to take all three, but the, all three were great. Yep. But uh, I think I, I reacted to uh, and was reminded again that if you have product market fit in Sweden, Denmark or Norway or where, wherever that is, your, your, your main region, maybe entire Europe, that is no guarantee that you have product market fit in the US. You know, and I think people feel that sometimes like, holy smokes, you know, we're crushing it here in my region. Yeah, but maybe the conditions are different. Like you said, you know, it's all these things that sometimes people don't think about. Maybe you had a great partner network, you know, you're selling in your local language. Maybe the competition is not the same. So is there really a spot for you in this new market? And domestic success doesn't guarantee that. I, th I thought it was really interesting how he reflected on that. Yeah. What about you, Thomas? Well, I'm sort of in the same neighborhood here, but what I thought was interesting is that usually maybe you think about why don't we succeed in this market and you look at, you know, differences and so on. But have you really done your homework to analyze why you actually succeed in the market you're in? Right. Because if you dig there, you might find that it's, you know, totally other reasons that makes you successful in a certain market. So I think that was something um, that, that I think was very valuable. Yeah, I mean, exactly. How, how many times have we heard that, you know, people find out that their customers are using the software in a way that they didn't thought they were going to use it, where they see values potentially different from the values we're marketing? Yeah, and that goes back to, you know, how well do you know your customers? Exactly. So, um, yeah, start there. Yeah. I think there were a lot of golden nuggets here, uh, I must say, definitely. And uh, I can also just, you know, reflect that, uh, yeah, maybe you should move over to the US. Uh, there's a lot of cash to <laughs> to be made there, probably more than we do here together. So, uh, hey, I, I enjoy hanging out with you and it's, it's, <laughs> it's not all about money. Uh, oh, okay. It's not all about money, but it, it, it indeed, it is a very interesting topic and a little bit of a spoiler alert here. If you want to dig into some of these topics more, I can happily or we can happily tell you here that Giles will actually be at Sassiest. He will be there. He will talk more about these things. So make sure you also show up there. And looking at what has happened recently here at uh, SAS Nordic and Sassiest is that we launched our CEO network, uh, which is fantastic. I think we have a very, very strong lineup, even stronger than last year. Had a, a great kickoff in, in beautiful Copenhagen. And uh, we are also here launching our executive network with senior leaders within sales and marketing and product and finance and so on. And if you're interested in those, uh, there is still time to jump on the wagon. Uh, you can go to zasnordic.com um, website and check out under community, you find um, a page about the executive network, you can join there. Or if you know where to find us, which is, you know, at LinkedIn or via contact at sasnordic.com you can reach out directly and we will make sure that you get into a group if your company has more than 2 million euro in ARR and you have a leadership position C-level VP or similar I think that about sums it all up for, for this time around but we're looking forward to, to, to meeting you and seeing you all again in the different channels here absolutely thank you for listening and thank you for being engaged in the sassiest community bye <laughs>